while the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night that's when i'm gonna stand up take my people Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And I'm very excited today to begin uh, my look at W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, or its full title, Black Reconstruction, A History of the Part uh, that which Black Folk Played in the Attempt to Reconstruct Democracy in America, 1860 to 1880. Um, so normally we'll just say Black Reconstruction in America. Um, I've been wanting to do this since I since I was last looking at um, black writers uh, a long time ago. Um, I think I was doing Du Bois and Johnson at that time. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could do Black Reconstruction in America? And at that point time, they didn't yet publish it. Another Library of America has published it. I, I don't have that volume, but I do have my own copy of this book. So I'll just use this as an excuse to um, go at it. Um, I, I think the 100 pages, the length will be a little bit uh, different because of that. I think Library of America doesn't have quite as many words per page as this particular edition. Uh, I think this is like 600 pages, but the Library of America edition is like 1,000 pages, which includes notes and a few other essays. So I'm not quite sure how it lines up. But let's just aim for about six or seven episodes on the text, and that'll be close enough. Um, and um, yeah, and it should be a good time. Um, now. At the end of this, I may look at primary sources about Reconstruction. There's a whole other anthology, uh, which is sort of the sequel to the Civil War series on Reconstruction. It's one volume, uh, and it looks like it has some really great uh, evidences and sources that can help us um, confirm, ask questions about, develop our thoughts on this book, Black Reconstruction in America. So um, um, you probably know the background. Of about this book a little bit. Um, it's, he had written about, uh, I mean, Du Bois had written before about uh, Reconstruction uh, back in The Souls of Black Folks. So this isn't all new. Uh, his defense of the Freedmen's Bureau uh, and the essay on the Dawn of, Fre on the Dawn of Freedom both uh, talk about these types of uh, actions, the, the agency of black people in asserting their freedom. Uh, in the era of Reconstruction. Although the arguments aren't as fleshed out as they are here, obviously, and Du Bois in 1930 is much more Marxist in his approach. We have a lot of Marxist language here, and we have a much more of a concern about the global proletariat, um, which isn't there in The Souls of Black Folk quite as much. A little bit is there, but it's not quite as on the surface. Here it's definitely on the surface. The first chapter is literally called The Black Worker. The second chapter is the white worker. And in those chapters, there are sides where he talks about uh, global capitalism. Oh, yikes. I just I had to stop for a second. I'm suffering a bit of a cold, as you might notice. But I want to move ahead and not get behind. The way my colds have been going lately, it'll be two weeks if I wait till I'm 100%. Uh, I don't know why. It's like the symptoms mostly go away, but I kind of have a really long post-flu period, where I just feel kind of not 100% and a little stuffy nose. Anyways, where was I? Oh, yeah, much more Marxist, much more global, and much more concerned about democracy. I think that's one thing that it's maybe, again, under the surface of souls of black folk. That's not his primary concern there. Here, it really is. It's like how we can create an interracial democracy. So, uh, And he thinks it's possible because it had been done before. And that kind of sums up the argument of this book is that black people in alliance with others created an interracial democracy in America, the first in world history. And that's not only something to be celebrated, it should be like we should learn from it and, and try to replicate its successes. Um, now, he's one of the few people saying this. Now, the state of black history, um, I mean, like the writing of black history in the 1930s, 
was not that great. You have the Journal of Negro History, I think it's called. Uh, I think that's evolved to the Journal of African American History now. But that was uh, a rather niche academic publication that uh, was mostly read by the handful of, of, of you know, history professors at like uh, African American colleges and things. Um, not a, it wasn't being read by mainstream history. Um, and instead, you have a lot of, but you do have a lot of writing about Reconstruction in among white mainstream historians at the top universities and the top history programs. And that tended to be, it's all now what we call the Dunning School. Of course, the Dunning School being this reactionary view of Reconstruction, that basically the view boils down to the, the idea that uh, freedom maybe was a good thing for black people, better than slavery, but uh, political rights. Um, w would be dangerous. And somehow the restriction of the franchise and the civil rights, the Jim Crow era that follows Reconstruction, was justified by the, the lack of capacity for democracy that black people displayed during Reconstruction. Um, now, of course, some of that does get bottled, re you know, packaged with lost causes, which did say slavery was better than freedom and the Old South was better than the New South and, and those kinds of arguments. So that's in there too, but you know, I think the mainstream historians tended to focus on the more, what they saw as the destructive, disruptive aspects um, of, of the Reconstruction era, seeing it as a, a mostly negative period and mostly negative because black people were given such political power in such short time when they weren't like ready for it. Now that idea of needing to be ready for democracy, it's still with us today in a certain degree when you think of disenfranchised populations around the world. Um, you know, you still hear, you know, people talk, of, you know, we, we you know, obviously, I guess I'm thinking about anti-colonial, you know, the anti-colonial movement uh, in the 20th century mostly, but where you know, the argument was made that these people aren't really ready or they had to be prepared for democracy or prepared for independence. It's not just something they should have as a, as a, as a general human right. It's something that has to be kind of earned. This is like goes back to Burkean ideas. Like Burke had this whole thing in the French Revolution. Like the English could have their civil war and their revolution. The Americans could have theirs because they're English people once removed. But the, the French don't have a history of democracy, so they can't really achieve it. Now, those arguments are all thrown out the window by this view of Reconstruction because obviously slaves didn't have democracy. They didn't experience it before. Many of them were illiterate. Uh, the vast majority were Ill illiterate. But they were able to establish for themselves um, the, like a, the foundation of uh, you know, a new democracy with schools, with churches, with social organizations and movements and politicians and, and political organization and militias and all these things. Now, yes, there was some help from the Republican Party um, and the Freedmen's Bureaus and things like that and, and radical Republican politicians. But most of the actual work was done by black people in the South. So that's um, what Du Bois here is trying to, to praise and remind us of. So um, I guess we can um, jump into the book. Today I'm going to look at the first four chapters, the black worker, the white worker, the planter, and the general strike. Now the first three of these kind of just set up a class analysis of the South. Um, and the fourth talks about the Civil War in a way that um, I think it's pretty obvious just from the title, what he's trying to say about it. Um, but everything here is really, really well written. He does have his more objective academic paragraphs here, but even those are, are so clear and well said that that's, you know, it's, it's hard to argue against it when he presents his evidence. But he does feel the need to present an overwhelming amount of evidence because he is running contrary to the, to the, where most historians are, right? Now, some of this is coming from, his evidence is coming from white historians. It's coming also from some black historians. It's not coming from archival materials, apparently. He, he was not able to get access to those. He had to rely on, on secondary sources for the most part. Um, and some of those secondary sources are by racist Dunning school style historians. But he's able to extract from those truth because they were doing actual research, right? They were, 
you know, they weren't making stuff up. Their interpretations were way off, but, you know, the facts were still there, and there's things they couldn't deny entirely. And Du Bois is able to extract from that uh, a whole new interpretation. I, I think it's a good example of the power of just careful reading of secondary sources and careful reconstruction of the history, you know, what can be done with that. Um, and, and, you know, I think sometimes we overemphasize new archival research when we do history and not meditate on what has been written and what, what, it, what that narrative of what has been written can tell us and um, can teach us. So that's one thing I kind of like about this book. But anyways, as I said, very Marxian from the get-go. Uh, du Bois had been moving to the left. The, like the, I mean, he was always, I guess, on, the, on the, the left, so to speak, but he moves more towards socialism. At this period of his life, he'll, of course, be a communist at the end of his life. I think, uh, you know, moved to Ghana. He died in, in Africa. Um, now, the first chapter, of course, uh, is the black worker. He doesn't say the slave. He talks about the black worker for a couple reasons. One is he's not really just talking about slaves. He's talking about black workers across the South, both slave and free, North and South, uh, to some degree. And he's also talking about, um, he wants to emphasize that slaves were workers primarily, that they were enslaved for their labor, and that it was a form of exploitation. Um, he starts out this chapter with a lot of discussion of the diversity of Africa, um, and and he, you know, this he one of his first works of history, of course, was a history of the slave trade. So he's well aware of where slaves came from. Um, quote: In origin, the slaves represented nearly everything African, although most of them originated on or near the west coast. Yet some of them appeared in the great Bantu tribes from Sierra Leone to South Africa and the Sudanese, straight across the center of the continent from the Atlantic to the valley of the Nile. The Nilotic Negroes and the black and white brown Hamites, the black and brown Hamites allied with Egypt, the tribes of the Great Lakes and the Pygmies and Hotentots, and in addition to these distinct races of both Berbers and Arab blood. It's no doubt, there's no doubt of the presence of all these various elements in the mass of 10 million or no, more Negroes transported from Africa to the various Americas from the 15th to 19th century. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's true to some degree. I, I, he hasn't done genetic analysis, obviously, but now we can and maybe can confirm that. Um, but pretty quickly into this chapter, he needs to zero in on the United States and, the, and colonial America, and he does that, um, you know, saying most slaves who came to North America came from the West Indies, and this is just a slave trade circuit. Uh, the slave traders went to Africa and went to the Caribbean, bought and sold slaves there, and then went to North America. Um, so part one result of this was a lot of the more cantankerous, uh, troublesome slaves ended up in places like New York because that's the, they were the buyers of last resort. Um, now, ultimately, he, he does zip through a lot of history in these first opening pages um, because he doesn't really need it all. I mean, his point essentially is there is a national need. American dependence on black labor is the foundation of exploitation of black labor, that the country needed it. Uh, it needed it because it had land and not enough workers. And the only way you could get workers to work in those conditions on plantations is through some form of coercion. And ultimately, the most well-developed form of that coercion was the slave um, system. And then he makes a case that many historians since him have made that out of this come racial ideologies. Thus, the old difficulty in the paradox appeared in new dress, he writes. It became easy to say and easier to prove that these black men were not men in the sense that white men were and could never be in the same sense free. Their slavery was a matter of both race and social condition, but the condition was limited and determined by race. They were congenital wards and children to be well-treated and cared for, but far happier and safer here than in their own land. As, um, so, again, the, the question of did race come first or did slavery come first is important. I think most historians think like racial ideology emerges after slavery is already well entrenched as a justification for it and as a product of it itself, of, of slavery. Um, and I think Du Bois here essentially agrees. Exploitation came first. Um, now, he he's, doesn't deny that other workers are 
exploited in America. In fact, the exploitation of immigrant labor is the story of America largely. Um, but for many people, for whites, uh, free land was the foundation of democracy. Again, predicting very important historical arguments made like in the 60s and 70s. If you think of like American slavery, American freedom by Edmund S. Morgan, he emphasizes the association of land and democracy and whiteness in that book. Uh, and Du Bois is sort of doing the same thing here. Uh, the opportunity for real and new democracy in America was broad. Political power was first, as usual, confined to the property holders and an aristocracy of birth and learning. But it was never securely based on land. Land was free, and both land and property were possible to nearly every thrifty worker, end quote. So that, the fact that land was available to everyone meant democracy was going to be have a wider basis and foundation in America. So you need racial barriers then to keep that from tr turning into a full democracy. And that's, of course, the potential of Reconstruction. Now, this leads him to talk a little bit about free blacks um, and yeoman farmers and, and all of this. And, and he does lay out that blacks had some rights in some colonies and all that, but discrimination did still play a role in most uh, of the colonies uh, through the revolutionary period. Um, but his heart, the heart of his focus here is on the master-slave relationship um, and the ideologies that back that up and make this exploitation possible. Um, he wants to remind us that of all the workers being exploited in America, the black worker was the most exploited. Uh, he uses this in part to, to directly counteract arguments often given by white historians that slavery may not look that bad compared to maybe Roman slavery or compared to working class conditions in, in Europe. Um, he actually bites the bullet on that and says, you know, there may be something to this. Um, slaves lived largely in the country where health conditions were better and worked for in the open air and their hours were about the current hours for peasants throughout Europe, blah, 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 right? But he says, it's just as true that the Negro slaves in America represented the worst and lowest condition among modern laborers. Um, so you can't compare them to like some pre-modern workers, is his warning here. Um, and he, then he kind of says, well, it's not just labor exploitation. This exploitation is backed up by state power. He mentions Jefferson directly as a slaveholder uh, and someone who wanted to keep slavery intact if, if he maybe didn't think it was ideal, but he didn't see an alternative. He, he thought it had to be based on coercion and power. And then this manifests in the slave codes. Um, now, like a good Marxist, Du Bois likes to mention that the master is not always as free as he would like to be or he imagines himself to be, right? This is a cornerstone of Marxist theory is that the capitalist is just as much a product of the economic system as the worker. And is much bound by it, and this limits their own freedom and potential happiness. Um, they have more wealth, more material comforts, but they're not necessarily going to be like more liberated. They're just as much uh, exploited by the system. Um, and and the limit for masters in this case was the slaves themselves. So what he's trying to get here is contradiction. Right? This is, of course, a Marxist idea too, is that there's contradictions in class relations, um, you know, workers and capitalists being opposed. But what about masters and slaves? Well, here the contradiction, as Du Bois understands it, is that the slaves were legally not people, legally treated as, as less than human beings, but they very much were people who had agency and autonomy and could resist, all right? He, you know, he, the slave had um, a degree of agency that's going to constantly undermine the ideal relationship that the masters want to um, maintain. Um, and he kind of tries to tease out breeding here as an example of this, that on the one hand, slaves own desires for family and propagation is enslaving themselves, right? It's enslaving their future generations. So the fact that they have some agency over how many kids they have, just to a certain degree, women less so than, than the men, of course, um, is going to 
give the slaves some power, and that's going to lead to the intermixing of races as white masters turn to raping slaves to ensure future generations. He's very, very blunt about this and very direct, and I think uh, rightfully so. This is really an important part of, of slavery. And he gets to talking about the, in the domestic slave trade as well as part of this. Um, as he gets towards the end of this first chapter, though, he has to begin to discuss uh, democracy, because that's his main theme of this book. Now, early on in this story, democracy is uh, a couple things. One, it's this something reserved for white landowners, which is most white men at the time. But it's also something being debated and discussed uh, in respect to black people, because black people are the issue of the time as we get closer to the Civil War, right? Quote, the true significance of slavery in the United States to the whole social development of America lay in the ultimate relations of slaves to democracy. What were to be the limits of democratic control in the United States? If all labor, black as well as white, became free, were given schools and the right to vote, what control could or should be set to the power and the action of the laborers? Was the rule of the masses of Americans to be unlimited and the right to rule extended to all men regardless of race and color? Or if not, what power of dictatorship and control? How would power, property, and privilege be protected? Unquote. So that's ultimately it. It's like if... And this is true of, it, of dismantling any class society, right? If, you, if you're truly going to empower everyone, right, then boundaries of property and wealth become, become meaningless. And that's the real threat to the, the people with authority, right? So they're going to choose the most undemocratic options to preserve their, their power and their authority over that and their privileged position, right? It's, like, very hard to convince people to dismantle all authority because they always can see some authority for them that they have, right? It's like someone may be for democracy in a broad sense, but may not, you know, be willing to give their children total autonomy or give um, their spouse total autonomy. Or they might own a small business and certainly don't want to extend that to their workers. They're unable to really grapple with the full consequences of democracy. So, um, like I said before, though, Du Bois always likes to go back to uh, this question of democracy and the global picture. He, he can't stop himself. This chapter is called The Black Worker, and he writes this at the end of the chapter. The dark and vast sea of human labor in China and India, the South Seas and all of Africa, in the West Indies and Central America, and in the United States, the great majority of mankind on whose bent and broken backs rest today the founding stones of modern industry shares a common destiny. It is despised and rejected by race and color, paid a wage below the level of decent living, driven, beaten, prisoned, and enslaved in all but name, spawning the world's raw materials of, in luxury, cotton, wool, coffee, tea, cocoa, palm oil, fiber, spices, rubbers, silks, lumber, copper, gold, diamonds, leather. How shall we end this list and where? All these are gathered up at lowest price, lowest of the low, manufactured, transformed, and transported at fabulous gains, and the resultant wealth is distributed and displayed and made the basis of world power and universal dominion and armed arrogance in London, Paris, Berlin, and Rome, New York, and Rio de Janeiro. Here is the modern labor problem. Here is the kernel of the problem of religion and democracy, of humanity. Words and futile gestures avail nothing. Out of the exploitation of the dark proletariat come the surplus value, filched from human beasts, which in cultured hands the machine and harness power veil and conceal. The emancipation of man is the emancipation of labor, and the emancipation of labor is the freeing of that basic majority of workers who are yellow, brown, and black. Wow. Um, he doesn't really hide his, his agenda here at all in, in his use of language or in his broader vision, that this was not only an opportunity, Reconstruction was not only an opportunity for a interracial democracy in America, it was the potential for an interracial democracy globally as well. Um, and we just kind of missed that train. Um, and uh, unfortunately, this episode, we're never going to be able to get to quite that train because we, he, the first four chapters of this book are just set up, are just establishing the, the, the foundation. But anyways, chapter two, I'll spend a little less time on chapter two called The White Worker. Um, 
His subtitle for this chapter is How America Became the Laborer's Promised Land and Flocking Here from All Over the World, the White Workers Competed with Black Slaves and a New Flood of Foreigners and the Growing Exploitation Until They Fought Slavery to Save Democracy and then lost democracy in a vaster, new and vaster slavery. Um, now, there's a lot here because the white worker is, it's, it's hard to, now the black worker as a slave, there is kind of a unit there. There's other groups that don't quite fit in regional differences and Du Bois is somewhat aware of those. The white worker though, you can't really do that. You have indigenous or native born workers, I should say, you have immigrant workers, you have regional differences, south and north. Um, and to say that all of their experience is based on like land being free um, to thrifty workers, there's some truth to that, but that doesn't really tell the full picture. Um, he's, he's really kind of biting off more than he can chew, I think, with this chapter. It still works very, very well because he wants to say that white workers saw in slavery a threat to democracy that they... Um, embraced that they their identity was based on um, this democracy and if slavery could be a threat to it um, then you know, like if slavery could spread into the zones that they've kind of carved out for themselves as the future of American landed white democracy that could be a danger to them, right? So this is kind of like the free soil idea. It's a long way of saying, you know, Du Bois is well aware of the free soil ideology, which is kind of the West for white free workers, uh, not for blacks, which, you know, it meant they're sort of anti-expansion of slavery, but not really for the whites' own or for the blacks' own benefit or because they're particularly anti-slavery. But at the same time, there are anti-slavery voices among the white workers that Du Bois is also acknowledging. So there's a lot of details here. He even gets into the immigrant, how the immigrant workers sort of become white, uh, referring to the old, uh, the old well-known idea of like the Irish saying like the Irish, how the Irish became white uh, story. For the immediate available jobs, the Irish particularly competed and the employers because of race apathy and sympathy with the South did not wish to increase the number of Negro workers so long as the foreigners worked just as cheap. The foreigners in turn bl blamed black workers for the cheap price of labor. The result of was race war. Riots took place, which at first simply were simply the flaming hostility of groups of laborers fighting for bread and butter. End quote. Now he doesn't racialize the Irish quite m that much here, but the idea of these being two groups on the bottom of American society competing, sort of, or at least one group fighting to be just a little bit higher than the other, is at the heart of it. Um, now, he mentions that the German and English come with much more class consciousness, uh, coming out of like the revolutions of 1848, and they saw the solution to their problem land out in the West. Um, and for a while that works, but eventually slave labor becomes, um, competes with them. So they're politicized, and this politicization feeds into the anti-slavery conflict. And there are abolitionists, and there are kind of these free soil types. Um, he's, he spends a few pages kind of detailing all this. It gets more interesting when he gets to the Southern worker, I think. Um, he kind of identifies a couple different groups of, of poor white Southerners. He's, of course, acknowledging that most Southerners don't have slaves, so most white Southerners fall into this category. Uh, he says there's the mountain whites and the poor whites of the lowlands. Um, and the mountain whites are more mixed race. They tend to be uh, a little more, I mean, he uses long quotes to describe them. It's not really his language he uses here. Um, he uses others, so I don't really feel the need to quote it. But he's got this idea of, um, he calls one the mountain boomer, has little self-respect and no self-reliance. So long as his corn pile lasts, the cracker lives in contentment, feasting on the sort of hoe cake made of grated cornmeal mixed with salt and water and baked before the hot coals. Um, I don't know if this is really fair. He's quoting someone. He's not doing the research himself. He doesn't, I think he's not very confident in what he would say about these different groups, so he kind of relies on other scholarship. Um, where he's a little more confident maybe is when talking about the, the middle class poor whites, the small farmers, and the overseers, 
because those were the groups that maybe most directly competed with slaves. Uh, of course, the small farmers might own a slave if they were lucky and had a few good years. And then the overseers, of course, were part of the slave plantation system. So I think he's a little more comfortable talking about those, those particular groups. Um, but ultimately, he comes to the conclusion that the poor whites in general were not on the side of the planters. Um, now, this is tough. I, I don't know if the evidence bears this out entirely. I, I mean, I think we all want this to believe this is true, that poor whites tended to side were unionists, sided with um, each other rather than the planter class, did not see their interests as those of the planter class aligned. But how do you explain how mostly they fought for the Confederacy? Um, I think Du Bois here doesn't get into that question as far as I know in this book. Um, and of course you have to deal with the, the fact that, I mean, he, he's got to open the door here because many of these poor whites do support like the Republicans because Republicans offered them something that the planter class didn't offer them. But still, during the Civil War, they backed um, the planter class when the planter class was explicitly saying, we're doing this to defend our property and our position of authority, and they still backed them up. Maybe you could say it's Confederate nationalism. Maybe you can say it's propaganda. But... Um, but... There it is. I think Du Bois, the way he tries to answer this, is not a bad answer. And that he's trying to say the poor whites generally just saw blacks as competitors to their meager position. Kind of like how the Irish um, saw black workers. In a sense, he, he sort of says there, there's kind of this resentment of black uh, workers in the, in, the, in the South by some of these poor whites. Um, but he, he needs to kind of establish this tradition of resistance to hierarchy um, there um, to kind of understand this class. He does think they're an important enough class to spend half of this chapter on. So basically this chapter, the white worker has two parts. One is talking about essentially the northern worker and their politicization in the realms of slavery. And then he talks about the southern worker and how he, his political identity is shaped by his encounter with, with slavery. Um, now, once again, um, Du Bois here decides at the end that I'm actually talking about the whole world here. I'm not just talking about America, saying, indeed, the plight of the white working class throughout the world today is directly traceable to Negro slavery in America, on which modern commerce and industry is founded, and which persisted to threaten free labor until it was partially overthrown in 1863. The resulting color caste founded and retained by capitalism was adopted, forwarded, and approved by white labor and resulted in subordination of colored labor to white profits the world over. Thus, the majority of the world's laborers, by the insistence of white labor, became the system, the basis of a system of industry which ruined democracy and showed its perfect fruit in world war and depression. And this book seeks to tell that story. Isn't it, it like striking that Du Bois is writing so much about the issues of his time? He's writing about the First World War and the Great Depression as like, Maybe we, this is not the world we, need, we, we needed to have. We could have had a different world if we would have done things a little bit different. Um, and he's saying, like, here, maybe here's we could have found, like, an actual hinge point in history. And I'm, I'm certainly a believer that Reconstruction, this American Civil War, was a hinge point in history. It is one of those moments where if someone had tripped, um, you know, if John Wilkes Booth had tripped, maybe... Um, Maybe we would have a very different history. All right. The next chapter is the planter. Um, so they're really the only group left to, to talk about to set things up. Um, once again, we have political power being based on voting rights and land. And in the South, so wealth was particularly centralized, um, making it an anomaly in the United States. Um, there is resistance of poor whites to the planter class. So... Um, he gets a little bit into that, but he's mostly trying to get into the mind of the planter class throughout this chapter, and he comes at it from different ways. One is he sees them as kind of an aristocracy, obsessed with leisure, except with consumption. Uh, and then he uses this word at least twice, maybe more, at least twice he uses the word sexual chaos to refer to the planter culture. And here he specifically means um, interracial sex uh, between masters and their slaves. 
and resultant child that comes from that. He calls it sexual chaos. I think that's fine um, because it was disruptive to the planter household. 600,000 persons of obvious mixed blood, a figure admittedly below the truth, is his estimate for, for the result of the sexual chaos. So, you know, one out of eight or, or so, one out of seven, one out of, one out of seven or eight of, of these slaves were clearly um, their master's children at one point. Many of these were sold off, right? Um, I think really what he's trying to say in this chapter is not only that they had the power, they, they were established as a powerful class in the South, but also that there's sort of an economic lag. I, I think he's, and I, there is modern scholarship saying, well, slavery, the slave system was more capitalist than we think. It wasn't, uh, a, it wasn't regressive economically necessarily, right? It wasn't something that was just gonna fade away because of, of free labor was more competitive or something. That's an argument that's sometimes been given you know, slavery was on its way out anyways. You hear that by lost causers sometimes. And then some historians are saying, well, look, this is actually a lot of capitalist logic. It's part of the global economy. It's the, the, the cotton's being sold to textile mills in, 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 in the north and in Britain. This could have kept going. That, that was a necessary part of the supply chain. Um, and it was profitable. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like free labor would have been more profitable to southern planters. So, um, but Du Bois is being very Marxist here, so he needs to kind of look at these stages of history, and, and the planters do seem to fit more comfortably in that aristocratic group. So he wants to present them as a lazy, uncreative class, which to some degree I, I kind of disagree with. Um, obviously, it's nice to think of them as uh, just drinking their their Lipton tea, you know, on the, on the porch, right? But they were also settlers. They brought their slaves with them. The slaves did the work, but they were integral in expanding the country to the West. Um, there's no big universities, technologically maybe not that sophisticated, but in terms of establishing a presence in the South, in the, in, in the, you know, in that Southwest, Certainly, they did that through their avarice and their greed is what motivated them. But that's what motivates all capitalists to a certain degree uh, to do whatever creative acts they're doing. I, so I, I don't fully agree that this idea that they are just a parasitic class. They may look that way in 19, 1860 to a certain degree. But even then, they're looking to new frontiers. They want to take over Cuba. They want to expand to, to the West. Um, but... Du Bois here wants to argue that it's sort of an economic drain. Um, he gets a little bit into the movement to industrialize the South and its failures. Why isn't there industry? Um, and instead, he says, like, really what's holding this whole facade together is an ideology of, of what we now call like paternalism. Quote, the South had but one argument against following modern civilization in this yielding to the demand of laboring humanity. It insisted on the efficiency of Negro labor for ordinary toil and its essential equality in physical conditions with the average labor in Europe and America. But in order to maintain its income without sacrifice or excursion, the South fell back on a doctrine of racial differences, which it asserted made higher intelligence and increased efficiency impossible for the Negro laborer. Wishing such an excuse for lazy indulgence, the planter easily found, invented, and proved it. His subservient religious leaders reverted to the curse of Canaan. The pseudoscientists gathered and supplemented all available doctrines of racial inferiority. His scattered schools and pedantic periodicals repeated these legends. Until the average planter born after 1840, it was impossible not to believe that all valid laws of psychology, economics, and politics stopped with the Negro race. End quote. And I just want to stop here and say, you know, if you read this book carefully and closely, you probably don't have to read a whole lot of like new scholarship. To these arguments are still being made, and some of them are like, like this ideology stuff and, and like Southern science and how science justifies racism. Like there are books being written now and published not long ago. Stamp from the from the beginning has these arguments. I mean, these are not. Um, 
I mean, I just want to, I'm just, a hundred years ago, Du Bois was predicting the whole trajectory of, of scholarship about slavery and Reconstruction. Um, and even though, I don't know where he got all this stuff from, he's not very systematic with his footnotes here, but obviously he was able to piece together from scholarship he was reading to put this together. And I, I think it's just as a historiographical text, as a, as a, a moment in the history of history, it's really compelling how much he got right from our, our standpoint today. It's almost, like I may nitpick here and there, but I'm just overwhelmed at like how close he is to, to modern scholarship on, on the history of slavery. Um, now, he talks here also about, like, like he hints at before, like there's a weakness in the planter class, which is their labor force. The slave himself is a threat to the planter. Um, um, anything else? Diversity in the planter class. He's a little bit about that, especially with gender, the difference between the men and the women. Um, he says a lot here about the internal slave trade. Um, he says a lot here about how planters did not want or forestalled or you know, attempted to prevent the spread of democracy in this region, uh, how they were clearly on the anti-democratic side of history um, and fought for that in politics. They had, thanks to the three-fifths clause, uh, more political power than they deserved um, based on their population, right? Remember, the three-fifths clause gave... Uh, not a vote, but, well, essentially it did give three-fifths extra votes in a place. So if you have a place that's 50% a slave and 50% white, the whites can vote and the slaves can vote, but each white vote is worth three-fifths more, right? Now, of course, in many states, the black population was less. In some of the black population was more than whites, right? Like in Mississippi and South Carolina. So in, across, generally across the South, this meant that the planters had inordinate political power in Washington. More senators, more representatives. And this gave them their ability to forestall democracy at the national level. Um, but nevertheless, the South needed a nation, needed the nation, it needed the North. It needed, uh, it needed uh, police in the North to protect, uh, to recapture fugitive slaves. It needed capital. It needed a market for its cotton. Um, it's dependent on this. Quote, the abolition of American slavery started the transportation of capital from white to black countries where slavery prevailed with the same tremendous and awful consequences upon the laboring classes of the world, which we see around us today. In a sense, he's saying capital goes where labor is cheapest and slave labor is cheapest. And the argument here is, of course, that the South needed northern capital and, and got it because Northerners were willing to invest in the South because of the profitability of slavery. And when slavery ended, many of them went to engage in colonialism in Africa. That's at least the implication here, as I read it, as I understand it. I don't know if that's entirely true. I, 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 my understanding is a lot of Northern capital continued to flow into the South after the Civil War um, to take advantage of that. And some early industrial efforts were pursued by Northern capital. But I, I get Du Bois's point he's trying to make is that the South depended on the nation. So it couldn't be too disruptive until it felt existentially threatened by um, the Republican Party. And that's, of course, the last topic in this chapter is um, the movement towards secession. And he's very clear here that the motives for secession were the preservation of slavery. Um, but the good news here for the reader, is uh, revealed in the end of the chapter. With the Civil War, the planters died as a class. We'll still talk as though the dominant social class in the South persisted after the war, but it did not. It disappeared. Just how quickly and what manner the transformation was made, we do not know. No scientific study, uh, blah, blah, blah. Now, again, I don't know if I fully buy this idea. I think to some degree that planter class died, but certainly there was no land reform. Reconstruction tried this momentarily, but 
had there been a land reform, maybe we could say this, but aren't there still the big landowners? I guess they're not slaveholding planters anymore. I guess that's his point. It's not that you don't still have a landowning class, but they're not going to be an aristocracy anymore. Um, instead, they're going to have to turn to other means of power, lynching, mob rule, murder, cruelty. Those are Du Bois's words. <laughs> Uh, to sustain themselves. They no longer can have the facade of civilization anymore. They, they become brutal. They become brutish. Uh, the lies of their gentility wash away after slavery is destroyed, and they have to turn to other means to defend their power. All right, then we get to chapter four, the general strike. Um, and the point here, it's very clear. There's really one argument here. Quote, uh, to quote the start of it, when Edmund Ruffin... Edwin Ruffin, white-haired and mad, fired the first gun at Fort Sumter. He freed the slaves. It was the last thing he meant to do, but that was because he was so typically a southern oligarch. He did not know the real world around him. He was provincial and lived apart on his plantation with his servants, his books, and his thoughts. Outside of agriculture, he jumped at conclusions instead of testing them by careful research. He knew, for instance, that the North would not fight. He knew that Negroes would never revolt. <laughs> And of course, it is unexpected that the blacks uh, revolted, but they did revolt. Um, we know, what, two to 300,000 blacks served in the military. We know at least a quarter of those died. Uh, most of those were free slaves. Uh, there weren't enough free blacks to fill 200,000 Union uniforms. So where did they come from? Well, they came from slaves who participated in what Du Bois here calls the general strike. Um, now, of course, again, this is very Marxist language. That's a Marxist dream, uh, a working class movement dream to have the general strike, which can shut down an economy. Now, I don't think now by definition, a general strike is all workers on strike. Right. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way uh, in practice. A general strike could be a major strike in enough industries that could cripple the economy in the supply chain. Right. Like if the rail workers went on strike, that becomes essentially a general strike because no other work in the country can be done. Um, and that's what happened in the South anyways. It didn't take every slave walking off the plantation. It just took enough refusing to work, demanding wages, or running away to union lines to cripple the Southern economy entirely. Um, as Du Bois pointed out in the very first chapter, white America relied on slave labor for its survival. So that was uh, the power the slaves had, and they took it. And they ran with it as soon as the first shots were fired in the war. Um, so I'm not going to say much about this because we've discussed this issue maybe maybe too much when we did our Civil War series and our Lincoln series. Um, and we talked about it a little bit with uh, the, the slave narratives. And plus, it's getting late. It's getting um, um, there. But I think one important point he has, feels he has to make here. I, I do want to point this out. Um, and he feels he needs to make it. Um, no one thinks generally that strikers are lazy. No one thinks people go on strike because they're lazy. Uh, maybe some bosses think this way. But ultimately, people go on strike because they feel they need to improve their conditions. Um, du Bois here does feel the need to defend the slave for refusing to work from the claim that they're just being lazy. Um, and I think this is why he feels the need to say strike, that it wasn't just somehow a that he needs to say this was a strike because he doesn't want to just say this was, oh, as soon as the war broke out, slaves took advantage of the fact and, and stopped working because that would have feed right into white stereotypes about black laziness that were prominent at the time and, of course, are the heart of the anti-Reconstruction propaganda of history. Right? That's, they, they always emphasized that, ah, see, they just couldn't, sustain an economy after this because they were just lazy and they, they needed white people to, to tell them what to do to keep them working. So by framing it as a strike, you're making a, you're actually giving them uh, the agency that they deserve in this act. Cause, and that's why I think it's important to do this. It's not proper, properly say, you know, to say it's a strike, a general strike, like it's an organized thing led by unions or something. It doesn't matter, right? Um, it didn't need organization because the disgust with slavery was so deeply felt across the culture. <laughs> Quote, the Negroes were willing to work and did work, but they wanted land to work. They wanted to see in their own results of their toil. He talks a lot here about how former slaves worked in the army 
And of course, many fought. So it, he, this is maybe a little weird to feel he, why we, obviously no one in the modern age, or at least no non-racist would think you need to make this case explicitly. Um, but he had to at the time because of the ideology about race. Um, yeah, and so the story of the general strike is one of hundreds of thousands of black workers refusing to work for their own exploitation anymore, uh, 200,000 joining the army, 300,000 others working with the Union Army in some other way, and three and a half million other enslaved men and women being freed by this, lab this labor, this redirected labor. Um, so uh, we've talked about this story many times in this podcast, so I'll, um, I'll just tell you that Du Bois's account of it is quite good and, and clear enough. Um, but since we're getting, I'm almost hitting on an hour mark, and I got some other things I need to do today. I'm between classes right now, so I'm going to uh, sign off. Uh, in the next episode, we might only be able to look at two chapters. Uh, chapters four and five, The Coming of the Lord and Looking Backward, um, which will take us really through the first year of Reconstruction or so. Um, now, I know the first four chapters quite well. Um, you know, the, what, what hap what's said in each of these chapters, I'm not as clear on because uh, it's been a while since I read this book. Um, so we'll just move ahead. I know the big picture, so that's easy enough. But yeah, it looks like um, Coming of the Lord is 40 pages and Looking Backward is 60-some pages. So... Um, Yeah, so it's going to be a. We're only going to have time for two. We're only going to have room for two chapters. Um, but anyways, it should be great. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you because Du Bois is wonderful and um, fun to talk about. So, anyways, that's it for now. Uh, please let me know what you think of Black Reconstruction in America, particularly these first four chapters. And, and I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. So I'm gonna stand up, take my people.